killed some of my students last night. Afraid the facts mixed up. You calling Mr. Lawrence a liar? No call, no one, nothing. What are you here for, old man? Come ask, leave boy alone. What's the matter? The boy can't take care of his own problems? One to one problem, yes. Five to one problem. Too much ask anyone. Is that what's bothering you? The odds? Well, we can fix that. You like matching, Mr. Lawrence? Yes, Sensei! Uh, no more fighting. This is a karate dojo, not a knitting class. You don't come in my dojo and drop a challenge and leave, old man. Now, you get your boy on the matter. You and I will have a major problem. Too much advantage. Your dojo. Name a place. Tournament. <laughs> You've got real nerve, old man. Real nerve. But I think we can accommodate you. Can't we, Mr. Lawrence? Yes, Sensei. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. The 80s was a golden era for blockbuster hits, and countless films released during this decade have gone on to become cult classic films. One 80s movie that has certainly stood the test of time and continues to wax on in cinematic glory is The Karate Kid, which more than 30 years later is still adored by audiences of all ages. Not only did The Karate Kid provide an arsenal of catchphrases that seemed to appropriately fit into almost any situation, it also, more importantly, inspired generations to stand up against bullies. Martial arts classes boomed thanks to this underdog story, and new people continue to be drawn to karate thanks to the heroic determination demonstrated in the film's plotline. Its legacy is also seen through a few of its sequels, its 2010 remake with Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan, and its most recent comeback, with the YouTube and Netflix series Cobra Kai. There's a reason this film has had such an enduring appeal as its predominant message of overcoming obstacles through hard work is something everyone can feel inspired by. If all this nostalgia has you wanting to sweep the leg, get your fly-catching chopsticks out, and find your inner crane, then you're in the right place as Ron West and I discuss The Karate Kid from 1984 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So you all stretched and ready, Ron, as we... uh. Make sure you don't pull a hammy during this episode. <coughs> I will not pull a hammy, just like Ralph Macchio does not pull one on the current Cobra Kai episodes, where he kicks about three inches above the ground in, as he's uh, uh, similar age to me. So no, no hamstrings will be pulled in the making of this Timothy Zahn. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that. But one thing that I thought was interesting is, uh, you know, we'll talk about that. Nobody in this movie knew karate before, you know, before they got got the roles. And they said there's a reason that Daniel's son only le- learns mainly defensive moves is because he was horrible at karate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's pretty easy to tell. Uh, 
but that's really not the point of the no. We're not going to point of the movie. We're not going to jump. We're not, let's not jump down that rabbit hole this early. So, uh, but glad to have you back on the podcast. This is season two premiere. We decided to do Karate Kid because Cobra Kai has become such a big. Uh, show since it moved from uh, YouTube Red to now Netflix, and season three got bumped up uh, to January first. So uh, I have already binge watched all of the current season, uh, and so but we'll talk more about that in our next episode as we will tackle Karate Kid Part Two. But uh, anyway, so but you're a fan of the Cobra Kai series as well, right? I, I am. I have not made it all the way through season three yet. I'm six episodes in. I've okay. ten episodes in right. season, but so I'm, I'm pretty far along. And I'll be through by the time this week is over. I'll be through <laughs> uh, all, all those episodes. So don't so don't spoil too much for me. Oh no, we. Uh, I'll probably uh, just, just yet. Yeah, we'll probably wait and really talk about Cobra Kai in our our in in the next episode when we talk about Karate Kid Part Two. So uh, so this is a two parter. We'll do. First Karate Kid for this episode, and then the next episode, uh, the follow this one will be about Karate Kid Part 2, and we'll dive into Cobra Kai on that one as well. So, all right, but you know the drill. When did you see Karate Kid for the very first time? Oh, saw Karate Kid in the movie, um, in the movie theater, same movie theater, I saw the same thing in the little blue film, West Virginia, the mall in uh, Mercer County. Right. Uh, and what happened, I don't remember there being a huge buzz about the Karate Kid but the girls in my class at my school loved them some Ralph Macchio. <laughs> and so they were, you know, because you got Ralph Macchio at this time is um, uh, The Outsiders. Right. You know, and, and, and Karate Kid, you know, pretty close to back to back. And so he's in this movie and he's starring in it and they all went to see it and it was, and they came to school. It was like, oh, this movie's fantastic. He's <laughs> the cutest thing that's ever existed. And um, I hope one of them listens to this podcast. And here's, a, here's, my, here's my impression of them. They all sounded the, the same. But uh, so I went to see it at the movie theater and loved it. Yeah. Loved this movie. Um, and it's it's definitely an 80s classic. In fact, when I was watching it for this, I asked, I always checked with my daughter. I was like, did I, did I raise you correctly and show you this movie as you were growing up? And she said, yes. However, being a 20-year-old, she far prefers the Jackie Chan, Jaden Smith version of this movie so maybe i didn't raise her right after all i weep for the future i weep for the future <laughs> yeah i mean the the remake wasn't terrible but it surely wasn't as good as the original so which most reboots uh are that way so uh but yeah i saw it in the theater as well um i want to say i saw this when we were in texas um but i, I may be getting confused with the second one so but i know i saw it in the theater uh, but one of the uh, what's more impressed in my memory is when it came out on video. Uh, I remember this was a movie that we actually watched at school, like you know the end of the summer or right before summer starts, and like the teachers are like, "I'm not going to teach you anything else for the last two weeks of school. It's going to be all you know uh, fun projects, and we're just going to watch. You know, we're going to have a watch videos or whatever." And I remember this being the first movie seeing at school where it was like all the profanity was still in it. Like it wasn't, you know, we weren't watching a cartoon uh, movie. Like I remember watching The Last Starfighter at school, but that's pretty mild as far as language compared to this yeah. one. And I, remember, I remember my mom commenting about, I really like that movie, but I wish she didn't cuss so much, which she also said about Goonies and Back to the Future and <laughs> just about every other 80s movie that I love. So, uh, so th- I remember that. I remember seeing it in school a little bit more vividly than seeing it in the theater, but I do know that I saw it in the theater and i seen it so many other times since then so but when was the last time you saw it before watching it for the podcast 
Oh, I watched it um, last year in 2020. I, I, I watched it uh, in pretty much in its entirety, and I've seen it in bits and pieces here and there. Right, right. A year hasn't gone by, I'm sure. And I, <laughs> I haven't seen it. And I think it actually debuted in the in the summer. Yeah. So it was probably more, when I said they came back to school, it was probably more of a thing of, like, we would all call each other and stuff. And gotcha. that's where we heard, of, oh, you know, these girls went to see it, and, and these girls went to see it, and... and, and we would all call each other and, and plus school didn't end back then until for us in like mid June anyway. So it was right about the time that yeah. was coming out. Yeah. I think this one is uh, June 23rd. So it was like late June, but it actually came out two weeks after Ghostbusters. So it was not expected to, to do very well uh, at the box office. So Wow. Ghostbusters and Karate Kid both out at the same time. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good. That's a good time to own a movie theater right there. We were living the dream back then, weren't we? So. Uh, yeah, it's been a while since I've watched this one from beginning to end. I mean, like I said, I've seen it so many times. Um, a lot of it, I remember. You know, I could quote it word for word and line for line. Um, but it's it's been it's probably good been at least a good ten fifteen years since I've sat and watched it uh, all the way through. So. I really enjoyed rewatching it for the for the podcast. It, it brought back some great great memories. And all right, so you ready to talk about how it came to be? Do you know much about its origin? Uh, I don't know a whole lot about the origin of Credit Kid. Please inform me, sir. <laughs> well, all this was new to me, and I, it's pretty interesting. So, uh, up and coming screenwriter Robert Mark Kamen was approached by Columbia Pictures to compose a film similar to director John G. Avildsen's previous success, Rocky, which came out in 1976, after they had signed the director. Kamen drew inspiration from his own life when writing the film. As a result, he maintained strong opinions regarding cast and petitioned heavily for Pat Morita's inclusion as Mr. Miyagi, which we'll talk a little bit more later. So what happened was Kamen was 17 and he was beaten up by a gang of bullies and then began to study martial arts in order to defend himself. Kamen was unhappy with his first teacher who taught martial arts as a tool for violence and revenge. So he moved on to study Okinawan, I'm going I'm to mess this up, but Jojuru Karate under a Japanese teacher who did not speak English but was himself a student of Shoshun Miyagi. As a Hollywood screenwriter, Kamen was mentored by Frank Price who told him that producer Jerry Weintraub had optioned a news article about a young child of a single mother who had earned a black belt to defend himself against the neighborhood bullies. Kamen decided to combine his own life story with a news article and used both to create the screenplay for The Karate Kid. Sports Illustrated revealed that the movie's lead, Ralph Macchio, hated the title of the film. In his own words, he said, I fought tooth and nail to change this goofy title only because I knew there was a chance I had to carry it for the rest of my life, and he wasn't wrong about that. So, so pretty interesting that it's somewhat autobiographical of the screenwriter so i didn't realize that at all but of course there were the the uh correlations to rocky even when it first came out right the uh which which is also funny and we'll probably touch on this a little bit later but i'll bring it up now since we're talking about rocky yeah that the uh the, the song yeah uh, you're you're the best you're the best was originally optioned to rocky three yeah, exactly yeah and then was dropped for um, Eye, Eye of the, of the Tiger. Tiger. Yep. And then was offered to Flashdance. Yeah. <laughs> and was dropped for, for Maniac. <laughs> and it was like, man, what a, what a great uh, you know time for, for movie montage uh, songs. <laughs> you get Eye of the Tiger, Maniac. Yeah. You're the best. All right. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, yeah, uh, obvious, you know, some similarities to with Rocky. Yeah, and I think um, Stallone has like you know for a long time has always given uh, came in a hard time and said, "Man, you just you basically stole my story." You know of Rocky for Karate Kid. And he said eventually he just told him he's like, "You're right. I just you know it's a good story. Why not why not steal it?" So and he said when he told Stallone that Stallone let you know kind of let it go. He's like, "Well, the the greatest form of flattery is imitation. So if he knew it was a good story, so I might as well repeat it." So yeah, and I when when you know me being the comic book guy that I, that I was especially then. Right. There's a character. It's not a real popular character right. but, I, but I, have, I have next time you're at the house I'll show you I have some stuff in a minute <laughs> oh, okay but there's a character called Karate Kid uh, right. in the Legion of Superheroes yep uh, which we've seen that a little bit in like the Supergirl uh, uh, Arrowverse uh, shows on the CW because they have Mon-El and a couple other characters that are from the Legion of Superheroes mm-hmm. but Karate Kid is a is a character's name on there who's uh, really good at karate <laughs> and um Superpowered at karate, and right. I know they had to get. Um, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know anything about stuff like that, but I know right. they had to get permission from DC Comics for that title. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, they got permission for that one, but did you know there was also a lawsuit uh, filed against them for that name as well? Not by DC Comics. No. Yeah. So, um, according to the LA Times, it faced legal action when a karate instructor called Bill DeClement accused the film of ripping off his nickname. Apparently, DeClement had been using the moniker The Karate Kid for his business cards and promotional work. Luckily for the film, the legal suit was dismissed as only a few people ever really knew about this man's apparently famous nickname. So, <laughs> so man, you can't be having me Karate Kid. That's on my business card. How many people have that card? About 20 people. Yeah, we don't. That's not going <laughs> that, to That's not going to um, work. Well, I, don't, like, I doubt he uh, tried to do the money grab... Uh, you know, when it was first getting advertised, but once it became yeah. one of the highest grossing films of the year, it was like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, I'm the real karate kid. Once it started making money, you know. Let's jump a little bit into casting. So a lot of interesting names were thrown around for the role of Daniel. Do you know any of those? I want to say Nicholas Cage was one. Yep, he's one. Um, and maybe even Sean Penn. I think that's the only two yeah. that I... I think I recall. Yeah, I think Sean Penn was at the top of their list, and he decided against it because he was looking for more dramatic work. Uh, a very young Robert Downey Jr. was on the list. Charlie oh, wow. Sheen, Emilio Estevez, uh, Nicholas Cage, uh, Anthony Edwards, who was up and coming at that point, but they they thought he was actually too tall for the role. Uh, Edwards is tall, but he's got the same arm definition as Ralph Macchio <laughs> in this yeah. film. So that, that probably would have worked. Yep. Uh, C. Thomas Howell, Tom Cruise, of course, who are both in The Outsiders. And then I thought this was funny. Eric Stoltz was also considered, but they passed because they didn't feel he embodied the character well enough. And I was like, wow, he got booted from Back to the Future and from Karate Kid. He just did not have a very good... <laughs> wow. he, he, was, he, he did not do very well in casting, so... Uh, and, and it's it's funny that Johnny and Pony Boy were yeah. both up for the uh, roles from The Outsider, and uh, Johnny Johnny got the role over off Macchio. <laughs> so uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, Clint Eastwood's son Kyle Eastwood also auditioned for the role, but didn't get the part. Uh, Clint was so upset he banned all Coca Cola products from the set of any of his movies because Columbia Pictures was owned by Coca Cola at the time. But you know that's okay since Kyle Eastwood came became such a Household name uh, as a movie star. <laughs> after that, yeah, he 
as I yeah as I say that sarcastically so uh, but yeah but Ralph Macchio was ultimately cast on the strength of his performance as Johnny Cade in Francis Ford Coppola's film The Outsiders which came out just the year before in 1983 this might come as quite a shock but Ralph Macchio was actually 22 years old when he was cast for the role of the Karate Kid Macchio was hugely convincing playing the role of a young teen thanks to his small build and his youthful face. And I will say, when the movie first started, I was like, he looks like such a kid. I mean, absolutely, he looks so young. Especially, I guess, you know, once again, after watching a full season of Cobra Kai where he's in his, I think he's 50 now, or in his early 50s. So uh, seeing him that young was just like, wow, that's just crazy. So well, I was going to say, if he was... Um they were filming this in 83, and he was 22, so that's 73, 67. That means he's born in 61, mm-hmm. which means he's 59 right now in Cobra Kai, so he's almost 60 years old. Wow. That's what I'm saying. He still looks young. Yeah. For the, whatever age he yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. He's young for that age. Yeah. Wow, um, yeah. I didn't think about him being yeah, that. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> All right, according to Yahoo Movies, the film screenwriter uh, Robert Mark Kamen described Machio as being obnoxious, in quotes, when he came in to try out for the role, but in fact, that's exactly what came in and director John Avidson wanted. They wanted an actor who was look, who looked like a wimp, but had a chip on his shoulder, and that's exactly what Macchio offered. The creative team liked Macchio so much that they partially rewrote Daniel with him in mind. Macchio later commented that the character was originally named Danny Weber, and as soon as he walked in the room, it got changed to LaRusso to match his Italian personality. So. Absolutely. That works better for the role, I think, for sure. Yeah, for him and the mother. Yeah. Uh, definitely have the, the more Italian vibe going on. It has helped him seem more of an outcast in California, for sure. Uh, the studio originally wanted the role of Mr. Miyagi to be played by Toshiro Mifune, who had appeared in films like Seven Samurai and The Hidden Fortress, but the actor didn't speak any English. Pat Morita later auditioned for the role, but was rejected for the part by producer Jerry Wontraub, due to his lewd stand-up comedy routines and for his comical character Arnold on the hit TV show Happy Days. Kamen fought to cast Marita and had him record a screen test with a new, newly grown beard and an accent that Marita patterned after his uncle. Weintraub finally con- was finally convinced, and he was cast in the role. And, and when they, in the credits, you know, they, yeah. they actually show it to make him appear more ethnic. They use the name with Noriko yeah. Pat Marita. Right. What, what's funny about that is, um, you know, obviously he was on Happy Days. I was a big, still am a big Happy Days fan. I enjoy Happy Days. And like season two, maybe three of Happy Days where he's playing Arnold, uh, see if this sounds familiar, because, you know, this is way before Karate Kid. <laughs> right. Richie is getting bullied. Right. And uh, they notice there's a sign and Arnold's on the bulletin board offering karate classes. Mm-hmm. And so him and Ralph and Potsy and Joni sign up to show up at Arnold's that night it's after the restaurant's closed to take your karate class and Arnold Pat Marita <laughs> right. comes out to teach the class and they say Arnold what do you know about karate and he says is this the face of an Arnold <laughs> and, and, and he, says, he says I buy a restaurant big sign outside say Arnold you know how many letters in Takahashi <laughs> and so he's like his name's not Arnold he owns his restaurant named Arnold right. and he teaches them karate and really he just teaches them to like grab and, and flip people but it, it was funny because it's just like the name wasn't epic enough for this right he didn't want to change his name on happy days mm-hmm. to make it more epic because it was going to be too expensive right and then um i just i just remember the line but this has nothing to do with anything but it always makes me laugh Joni ends up his little sister ends up just flipping 
Richie all over the mat. Mm. And he's upset when he gets home. And they're like, oh, so what's that? He's explaining to the parents that maybe she got lucky and flipped you one time. And he goes, she flipped me in class. She flipped me in the parking lot. She flipped me all the way home. <laughs> I just, I've always remembered that line. And uh, But anyway, I love Pat Morita yeah. there. But to, to back up the line you said about you know his comedy and mm-hmm. the, the kind of risque comedy, he was the opening act for Red Fox. Oh, so, so yeah. Everything yeah. You need to know about he couldn't go in too clean with that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think that was, I, I read, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I read that I didn't put in the notes, but like, yeah, the producer, uh, Wontraub, really was not a fan, you know, of him because of the, more for the stand-up comedy than any, even more for the Happy Days. He was known as being loaded on during his comedy sets, and he just, he, he thought him to be a bigger risk to have on a film and didn't think that he could stay sober and you know stay in character. But when he came and had him do the the screen test, it really convinced him. And then you know he's passed on now. But there's there's a really good article Sports Illustrated did like an oral history of the movie. So if you have a chance to go, um, the link should be in the show notes. Uh, but you can go back and read that. And it's really good. His daughter um, and his wife, who the the woman that was his wife at the time, tell a lot about his backstory and like how you know this was a big deal for him that he had been typecast in so many different, you know, roles up to that point and was very discouraged in life. And, you know, he really wanted to be a a serious actor, but unfortunately for Asian Americans, especially at that time, they were not given those kind of roles. So to be a co-lead on a movie like this was a big, big deal. And I don't think I really realized that thinking back on it, but looking at it now, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, even today that would still be, you know, somewhat of a, not as big of a deal as it was in 1984, but still, it's, unfortunately, it's still not as common as it should be, so. Very true, and and what's funny with, with him wanting to be, and I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit here, but with him wanting to be considered more serious actor, but that's the final closing scene of the movie, where he's looking, mm-hmm. and he give, and that little half-smile, right. teary-eyed, I yeah. mean, that's the, you will not find a better, prouder, Parent, yeah, you know, he's not really the father. Yeah, but parent looking at his proud child scene in any dramatic movie you yeah. find as Pat Morita in that little in that little shot. Yeah, and, uh, he he just completely uh, completely nailed it. How far we've come when they're they're more concerned about Pat Morita and some stand up comedy that he had done when they were considering casting young Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and uh, being as a Charlie C. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So. Came and pulling stuff from his, you know, his own life of having a uh, real instructor. Um, he wanted real authenticity, and so Marita brought that authenticity uh, with his backstory of fighting in the Second World War and of his late wife's internment in a camp where her life ended. It was revealed in the L.A. Times that Pat Marita based much of Mr. Miyagi's backstory on his own experiences, revealing the actor had spent time in an internment camp in the U.S.A. during the war. This revelatory scene gave new dimension to Miyagi as a character, and most believe this moment in the film is what gave Marito his Oscar and Golden Globe nominations, which were also the first nominations for an Asian American actor in a supporting role. So very nice. Yeah. So and uh, he didn't just bring his formidable acting chops; he also lent his artistic talents to the production. He designed the bonsai tree logo on the back of the gi that Mr. Miyagi gives to Daniel himself. And also the song that he's singing during his drinking scene was another uh, contribution. It was a Japanese song that he had heard and loved as a child, and he insisted on including it in the movie. So that is one of the, I mean, I, I had favorite, favorite scenes, but that is one of the best scenes of the movie for sure. 
Um, and I was very uh, kind of upset when I found that that was a scene that was almost cut from the movie entirely because they thought it was it slowed the pace down too much. I'm like, yeah, but that was that was the heart. I mean that that yes. was that was the heart of you know him that that's what makes sense, especially at the end. Uh, there was one screenwriter that said that that was supposed to he wanted to do like some rewrites or whatever, and he said he would only rewrite the movie if Daniel didn't win at the end. He said because you can't have Miyagi telling him for ninety minutes it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, and then get to the end and then allow him to win. So when Daniel gets hurt, I guess he was going to change that ending. But for Miyagi to make that decision at the end to let him continue to fight, to me is all based on that scene of him sharing his backstory because it wasn't just Daniel fighting in that final round. It was Miyagi as well. Yeah. I mean, you just, that entire scene, you just, you, you learn so much about, I mean, here's this guy that has all these talents. We discover he's a great fisherman. He's <laughs> yeah. an Andy man. Right. He can clearly work on cars. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, a incredible garden and, 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 and he's doing all stuff, but he's completely alone and isolated. Yeah. And so when, when, when Daniel's reading the, the paper about, you know, wife and child dying, mm-hmm. uh, you read about, you know, him being in uh, concentration camps, right. uh, which was, you know, the, during the World War with the, with the Asian Americans. And it, like stuff starts to kind of make sense of why this guy is, he's kind of down and he's kind of depressed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, spending this time with Daniel, he's, he's, you know, coming to grips with, you know, this is kind of what I could have had, if, right. you know, my child had lived these times, and so he's, he's reliving that obviously with this with his other kid and being the father figure. But that's that's the heart of the movie. I mean, yes, Daniel standing up for himself, mm-hmm. but but it's also th- that relationship and and understanding more that he's just some guy teaching him karate. Yeah, you know, exactly. More. And uh, and Pat Marino does a great job. And I read the same thing you were talking about that they wanted to cut the whole drunken. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, scene you know mm-hmm. to get rid of that backstory i was like that better changes everything <laughs> if you take that take that scene out yeah exactly and that scene grounds the movie yeah exactly exactly and, uh, anyway they didn't take it out so kudos to yes them. yes <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so uh, for the role of Johnny Lawrence, uh, Crispin Glover, better known as George McFly in Back to the Future, was considered for the role. Uh, but the oh, student that, that would have been so bad. He, he he's such a weird guy. He is just like in real life. I don't I cannot. Yeah, I don't even know how that was even a thought. And also saw that Charlie Sheen. There were a few people that they had for Daniel. They were having them having them read for both. So like like Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez. Uh, Tom Cruise and C. Thomas Hall were all, C. Thomas Howell were also in the running as well, but um, but they 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 chose uh, William Zabka, who had no previous uh, film experience before this. Although the martial arts performances are highly impressive in the film, hardly any of the actors actually knew karate when they signed on for it. Zabka revealed in an interview with AV Club 
that he had been a wrestler in high school, but he had gotten a back injury from it. He was afraid his injury might act up when he began his karate training, especially since they had to do four hours of practice five days a week. Uh, Ralph Macchio was also a complete novice when it came to martial arts. Luckily, they had a great trainer, Pat E. Johnson, who was a seasoned professional when it came to martial arts and impressive combat skills. We'll talk more about him in a few minutes. We, we agree it's perfect casting up to this point. Ralph Macchio was perfect. Pat Morita was perfect. I think Zabka's was great uh, as a Johnny Lawrence. Yeah, Zabka is, and like you said, no no experience. and But the, the perfect element of, of menacing and jerk, although I will say, and again, we're going to talk about Cobra Kai next week. Yeah. Like when I watch Karate Kid now, I uh-huh. don't feel the same way about Johnny. Yeah, yeah. You know, as, you, as now that we know more about his backstory, mm-hmm. I have a little bit more sympathy for him <laughs> now watching the Karate Kid of why yeah. he's, he's kind of acting out the way he is. Yeah, and that thing with Zap, because he, he had to be the pretty boy, the pretty California boys. He had to have the blonde hair and the, you know, he had the athletic build and they got him on the dirt bike and all, you know, he embodied that role really well. Absolutely. So for the part of Allie, uh, Demi Moore and Helen Hunt were both considered for the role of Allie with an I. But Elizabeth Shue was cast based partly on a Burger King commercial that became widely popular in the early 80s. The film. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember that commercial? I, I should have went back and tried to find it on YouTube to see it. Maybe it would have sparked my memory, but I, I couldn't remember it. It wasn't as emblazoned in my mind as, as I thought it was. So, but you remember that I one? can still see her sitting, staring, you know, like a shoulder and headshot at, yeah. the, at the screen with the burger and a big smile. Um, <laughs> And 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 see in the movie it was oh it's a girl from the, the I, I wouldn't have, until you said Burger King I wouldn't yeah. remember it was Burger King per se right but it, I would I remember the burger commercial it could have been McDonald's <laughs> Wendy's whatever right but um yeah that's that's what what she was from from and I remember in watching the movie and then I'm doing a little bit of reading for this that Elizabeth she was actually athletic and she was actually a, yeah. a soccer player yeah she was the only girl on a boys soccer team. Which is why she's got some actual soccer skills. There. <laughs> she's a cheerleader, but there aren't yeah. soccer skills. She's, she's like, yeah, you don't really know what you're doing here. Yeah. Let, me, let me have that soccer ball. She also said later that she was very upset that all the guys got to do, learn all the karate training, and she didn't get to learn any of it. Like she was like, here I'm over here with the girls, you know, playing video games and being a cheerleader, and they're getting to have all the fun learning the karate, which she would have loved to have learned. So, but you know, I. I forgot how kind of tough she was. Like she, she holds her own. You know, not fighting, but you know, she stands up for herself. She wasn't the damsel in distress that I think I remembered early on. So, but yeah, this was the debut role for her and for Zapka. Another one late in production. Valerie Harper was considered for the role of Daniel's mom, Lucille, but the studio later hired Randy Heller for the role. And once again, I think she was she was a great choice. I can't see Valerie. Great choices. I wonder if there are financial reasons for some of this too because everyone's actually yeah. no experience this is a shoot no, no experience yeah. and whoever you just said for the mom, Val- Valerie, Valerie Harper yeah no I mean but who they actually did cast oh uh, lady. I mean, yeah. she didn't have a lot of experience no. compared to Valerie Harper she had to be cheaper yeah Randy Heller yeah and I don't really remember her from anything else really besides this role either so uh, but yeah this was very much a little movie that could I mean like once it, it's considered a sleeper hit because nobody expected it to make as much money as it did I mean they wanted to have they wanted to make a good movie, want to kind of duplicate what Rocky was, but they everybody talked about how even the production was like bare bones and nobody thought the movie was going to be anything more than just like a filler, you know, summer movie that some teenagers may want to go see and that's about it. You know, like a, 
a teen summer flick. I thought this was really cool. Uh, the word on the street was that Chuck Norris was considered for the part of Cobra Kai sensei John Kreese, but he turned it down because he didn't want to play a character that used martial arts in such a cruel and aggressive way. Uh, this turned out to be false. He was never offered the role, but according to his IMDb profile, he did state that he would have turned the role down for those reasons, even if it had been offered to him anyway. Other actors whose names were mentioned for the role of Kreese included Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, Harvey Keitel, Leonard Nimoy, and Christopher Walken. But the role went to TV actor Martin Cove, who won over the screenwriter and director by channeling his anger of only having one day to prepare into his audition. So I think the only other thing he had been in before that was he had a recurring role on Cagney and Lacey on TV. So that was so this was his big film debut as well. So again, they're saving money on the budget there. Yeah. All the people you named, and they went with the one person who no one's ever heard of. Right. Well, some of these, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, Kurt Russell was pretty big. Jeff Bridges was still kind of early. Harvey Keitel was definitely early there. Uh, Leonard, Norman, Leonard Nimoy would have been a big choice, but I just, I can't see Spock teaching karate. I just, <laughs> I just, I just can't see it. That, that would have been so weird. And then Christopher Walken telling them, uh, no strike first, uh, strike hard, uh, no mercy. But his, his speech cadence is always odd. But yeah. Christopher Walken can play creepy. Yeah, he can pretty, pretty well. And so um, I can see him pulling off the the more evil aspects of of Crease, probably the intense yeah uh, part, part of Crease. Wow, I'm still trying to picture Spock. As, uh, in order to live long and prosper, he must strike first and strike hard. Yeah. The movie also cast a number of actors whose parents were screen legend. Rumor has it that was the, at the behest of producer Jerry Weintraub, even though nobody understood why he wanted him. I know you you and I talked about this before. Chad McQueen, the son of legendary screen actor Steve McQueen, played Dutch, the blonde friend of Johnny Lawrence's, who was also a member of the Cobra Kai Dojo. And he actually bleached his hair blonde because he got a note early on saying that Cobra Kai was supposed to be kind of like an Aryan nation, more like a racist group. So he bleached his hair blonde, and then once he got the role, they didn't want him to change it, so he had to keep getting his hair uh, bleached. Yeah, they said all the other actors were constantly making fun of him yeah. about his blonde hair, and he, he hated it. <laughs> Early on in the movie, uh, Freddie invites Daniel to a party with his friends, and one of his friends was played by Frank Burt Avalon, son of singer Frankie Avalon. At the Halloween dance, a guy dressed as a chicken smashes a raw egg on Daniel's head. That guy is played by Todd Lukenland, who is the brother of Mike Lukenland, also known as Bobby from the Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch. And then Sports Illustrated states that also in the film, in small roles, were Frankie Avalon Jr. and a nephew of John Travolta. Interesting. Yeah. So. And, and not, uh, not a son of a, a screen legend, but uh, Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds yeah. <laughs> is uh, one of the Cobra Kai guys in the, in the background, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's kind of blinking, you miss him. So Anyone who's watched The Karate Kid knows the martial arts scenes are pretty good, and there's a good chance a lot of kids and adults found themselves wanting to reenact the karate moves seen in the film. The technical skill of these fighting scenes is due to the great fight choreographer hired for the film, Pat E. Johnson. According to Looper, Johnson studied Tang Su when he served in Korea, and after returning to the USA, he joined up with the one and only Chuck Norris, with whom he worked at Norris's martial arts schools. He was even featured in Bruce Lee's iconic film, Enter the Dragon. Johnson also appears in the movie, Karate Kid, as the referee at the Karate Championship. So, I'm sure you knew that already. Um, I 
knew most of that. Um, and I know that the, um, and I don't remember the actor's name, but when they get to the final four of the karate tournament, yes, uh, where it's uh, Johnny and uh, the other guy from Cobra Kai and then uh, Ralph Macchio and then the Asian guy, right, uh, who, who looks like he's probably about 30 years old right. uh, in, the, in the movie. He um, also did, did a little bit of, of the chore- choreography as well. He was a black belt. Nice, like a 10th degree yeah. black belt. And he is the actually the person, he's the stunt double for Pat Morita in the film. Mm-hmm. And when, they, when he's doing the crane kick out at the water and he's on the uh, on the little piece of, of wood or concrete or whatever, standing up and going to do in the crane technique, yeah. it's that guy uh, with a little Pat Morita wig on yeah. uh, that's doing the, the crane technique because obviously Pat Morita could not do that. No. So, which I remember as a kid, like, wow, he can really kick like that? I mean, I had no idea that was a stunt double, but yeah. So yeah, his name is Fumio Demura. Yeah, he he was a stunt double for Marita. There's actually a two, 2016 film called The Real Miyagi uh, that gives his backstory as well. So, oh, okay, yeah, all right. So let's jump into uh, favorite scenes. I'll let you go first. Uh, well, favorite scenes. Uh, the one I mentioned already is the very very end when you see um, Pat Marita and the look of pride as a. As Johnny's being carried off with, we did it! Oh, yeah. The, the trophy, <laughs> which I read that he, Rapunzel kept the trophy. He has the yellow car. Yeah. And, and the, the, the trophy. trophy. He, yep. he, he got to keep both of those. Uh, so definitely a uh, favorite scene um, there. The, the driving, the beginning, very beginning of the film, when they're driving across country in the car and he's mm-hmm. mom and they're having a conversation, has always didn't mean a lot to me then in 1984 but in 1987 when I was moving to Florida <laughs> with my mom in the car right. driving and not wanting to go and really yeah. upset about it yeah um, when I watched that scene and I listened to the things and, and then and later on when he's upset he's throwing the bike in the dumpster why can't we just go home yeah I yeah. said that so many times yeah. over like the first six months we were in Florida and so there's kind of a personal meaning of those mm-hmm. to me now when, when I watch it other famous uh, scenes. For some reason, I've always liked when uh, when uh, Daniel gets his comeuppance at the arcade by Allie's friend. When yeah. she goes, and she goes, "Oh, you left before the fireworks." And he goes, "What? His hand on her butt?" And she yeah. goes, "No, her right hook." Yeah. You think she hurt her wrist doing her nails? Yeah. I've always loved that. And then him saying. But she didn't tell me, and her going, "She shouldn't have." <laughs> yeah. And then, and then walking off. And I, I've just always, I don't know, that I've always enjoyed that scene. I don't really know why. Yeah. Um, All right. Two, I'm, two, I'm trying to think. If, two, two quick things. before. You, yeah, two good things. So for the first one you mentioned, I, I agree as well. Being an Army brat, we moved several times as a kid. And so, yeah, I also have very personal, like that, I just want to go home. I have probably, I know I said that several times. And a lot of times when I said it, I had that scene in my mind when I said it, you know. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, there was there's a having to move and leave your friends. That was pretty commonplace for me. You know, you get somewhere for like two or three years, and it's time to move somewhere else. So, um, yeah, I definitely had some emotional moments from that scene. And then that scene in the arcade. Yes, I agree. That's a great scene. But the girl that has that conversation with him. Do you know who they originally wanted for that that role? Yeah, Sarah Sarah Jessica Parker. Really? Yep. And she asked for too much money. Statements about why they're casting all these unknown people. They yeah. didn't want to pay anybody. Yeah. And I gotta say, I've never cared for Sarah Jessica no. Parker, so I probably would not feel 
feel the same way about that scene. If they had cast her in that role, I'd be like, oh, about the worst scene in the movie. <laughs> the one with Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. And if they'd have brought Tom Cruise in, your, your oh. boy, I mean, how would they have fit his running scenes into the dojo? <laughs> as he, he was just running circles in there. And yeah. long montages of that. There you go. Um, he wasn't but, known uh, for his uh, running back then, so. But yeah. Uh, oh, in his mind he was. Yeah. So. Uh, he was sliding in risky business. That went too, too, uh, True. Time, the time frame. That wasn't too much. You know, the karate scenes, the karate, um, the actual, the actual tournament scenes, like when you watch them now, you could watch them, you know, and be like, this is not great. But they're still a little, like, those are some, like, an exciting thing. I didn't know anything about uh, you know, karate tournaments mm-hmm. or karate in general and how that worked. And I remember like, I don't understand these rules. What's that? <laughs> sometimes you can kick them in the head. Sometimes you yeah, can kick them yeah, in the head. Yeah. I don't uh, think the rules are well established in the film to understand. Cause I still don't really, even watching this time, I don't understand how Daniel won. And why all of a sudden, whoever makes the next kick gets the, whoever gets the next point wins. And I was like, I thought they were, I didn't think it was tied already. I thought, I thought Johnny was ahead two to one, but anyway, I just, I, it did the math and add up for me, so. Well, and I thought Allie says at the very beginning that you get a point from here to here, and it's basically like sh- shoulders to waist, like it's torso. Right. Yeah. And then the first couple of fights, no one's hitting in the head, and then now they're hitting in the head to get points. <laughs> and, then, and it was just two points, and then now it's three points. Yeah. So I, that whole thing, uh, a little confusing. But those those little scenes are still, um, you know, exciting to, to see. It's not like the uh, the scene when Paparita uh, beats up the guys in the dark, yeah. and they basically lay the camera on the ground <laughs> to shoot up. Yeah, because Paparita's five two and he's jumping all like three inches off the ground, uh, similar to what they do with Ralph Macchio now at Cobra Kai, where they yeah. put the camera on the ground and shoot up to make it look like he's actually kicking higher than right. Him. Right. Um, and watching those things now, I kind of chuckle at him. But back then, I remember thinking. Pat can jump six feet up in the air on top of fences. Yeah. So those are fun scenes. What about you? What's what's your favorite scenes for you? Before we get to that, the interesting thing about the tournament scenes were, they were saying when they were making the movie, they actually had to have a tournament going on behind them. So those were all real karate students having a real tournament and all the shots behind them. And so Zabka says he felt like such an idiot you know, doing all these choreographed karate scenes while there's real karate kids, you know, real kids that know how to do karate behind them. He said, we felt like such idiots, like we're over here faking, trying to make it look real. And you got the real guys behind us. I think the director said that he had to tell, like to keep them energized. He was like, don't think of us as filming a movie for all the issues. Like you guys are having a real tournament. At the end of the day, somebody's going to walk away with a trophy. You guys are actually doing a tournament we're just filming stuff around you. So they had cameras in the bleachers, almost guerrilla style, so they weren't in the way of a lot of the tournament going on. So, which I thought was really cool how they did that. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I never realized that. And that's really good. So that's a real crowd, really cheering on. Yeah, because it's different, different mats, different matches going on all at the same time. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Yeah, that's I mean, a really good way to do that. Yeah. Get that authenticity of the crowd. Yeah. Man, why haven't more people done things like but, that? But the problem was, because they were seeing, they were watching the scenes being filmed, they knew that Johnny Lawrence was the bad guy, and so they would boo him during his <laughs> his scenes, and they're like, and the director's like, no, because you guys aren't supposed to know who he is, like, you're not supposed to know, he's just, I got the tournament, and at the point where Zabka's mom was in the crowd, 
And after like two or three times, they kept booing. And she's like, he's really a nice boy. Please don't do that. He's really a nice kid. So I was like, that's great. Having your mom. There. Mom, this is going to be the best scene in the movie. And she's over there. Why are they being so mean to my baby? So, uh, which, which, which you hear in the, you know, you hear when he gets to that final match, they call Johnny Lawrence's name and you hear the boo. Like it's, it's not so strong, but you can still hear it in the crowd. There's boos in the crowd. So I was like, wow, they, they, I thought that was interesting. So. That's outstanding. Yeah. Favorite scenes for me, I mean, I think uh, we kind of talked about earlier, the the, uh, the heart of the movie is that that drunken scene uh, when Mr. Miyagi's drunk and, you know, it's the anniversary of his wife and his daughter passing. So, um, and of course, you know, the for the most iconic scene, of course, now it's been, you know, it's coming, it's been overdone, it's been parodied so many times, but the whole wax on, wax off, when he realizes all these chores that he's been doing is actually Mr. Miyagi teaching him uh, the moves I, that, you know, as a kid, that kind of blew my mind, like, whoa, really? Like, you could really do that? Like, I could learn karate by painting a fence. Um, but like watching it this time, I was almost like he really had some good discipline because kids today would have been like, bump this, man, I am painting your fence, you know, <laughs> but I had read, Absolutely. but I had read that when he tells Ali about when she learned to, to dribble the ball he talked about how he learned to do it himself and it took a lot of time. So they kind of put that in there to show that he was, he was already a disciplined person. So he was going to be committed even when he felt like it didn't make sense. So, which is why it took what the fourth or fifth day before he finally just blew a stack. It's like, what do you, you know, I'm your handyman. I'm not, you're not teaching me anything, you know? So, and then even you saw that when he was kind of learning from the book and he was doing all those kicks. I mean, you could tell he had been working on that already. He wasn't, he wasn't going in halfway. He was fully committed. So, uh, but, uh, but that, that scene has always been one of my favorites. And so, uh, those are the main ones, I, I will say one scene and this is, this is not a favorite scene, but I just thought it was funny. Maybe because this is the first time I probably watched it in, in, uh, HD, which I remember Ron told me, make sure you're watching HD. Cause you got to see, you know, how great, fantastic the, uh, scenes are, the fighting scenes are, but Freddie, his friend at the beginning, did you notice his t-shirt? Uh, is it the Naked Bacon? Yeah, <laughs> with the two the two pigs. Yeah, uh, having having intercourse with the teacher that says Naked Bacon. Yeah, which I thought, which I it it struck me as funny. Number one, because I'd never noticed that before, but two, it sparked a memory of a guy I knew in junior high that got expelled from school for wearing that. If it wasn't that same shirt, it had the same phrase and somewhat similar picture that he wore to school, and it was like, uh, yeah, you can't wear that. You know, you can't wear that here. And he got it. He got suspended or expelled from school for whatever. So, but I was like, I never noticed that he was wearing that shirt before. So, I uh, thought that was funny. So, that was one of those shirts that I, I, I never, never bought. It didn't know anyone that had it. But when we we go to Myrtle Beach or yeah. someplace on vacation that had the T-shirt, you know, store, mm-hmm. you always saw that one in there. And like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a classic eighties, classic eighties T-shirt. Yeah, or let's talk about a few of the scenes, some uh, some trivia. I won't go into too many of these uh, just for time-wise, but a well-known scene in the film is the Halloween sequence that you mentioned earlier when Daniel is running away from Cobra Kai members dressed as skeletons. Uh, they said they filmed that like overnight. It took several hours, and Ma- Ralph Macho said that, which you, it looks like he's limping in that scene. Um, you've noticed it when watching it. Like, he looks like he's limping. I was like, did he get hurt? And he said that basically they had run so much that night he was just so exhausted. He said all the guys could have run him over four or five times because he was such a slow runner. 
but all the Cobra Kai guys were so much faster than him. So uh, anyway, but the fight ensues, and according to Sports Illustrated, there was really some violence that occurred that wasn't necessarily scripted and didn't turn out the way they all thought it would. It was revealed that Ralph Macho actually got kicked in the head during the filming. Macho recalls that it was around 4 a.m., and Zapka was meant to fake roundhouse kick Daniel, but instead of just pretending, he ended up catching Macho in the jaw. Zapka claims that Macho leaned into the kick further than he should have. It didn't matter who was at fault. The director decided at that point to bring in stunt doubles to complete the scene. They sat down for like a day and a half yeah. uh, to let Macho kind of heal up a little bit, I read. Yeah, and I think they said there's a couple of scenes where you can see he has a bruise on his chin that's not explained, yeah. and that was from that. So One of the most famous scenes in the movie is the moment when Mr. Miyagi and Daniel attempt to catch a fly using chopsticks, and Daniel ends up succeeding. Although uh, the saying, man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything, inspired many people to persist in their endeavors, the actual filming in this scene was accomplished only after trying a lot of different options. The film had employed a fly wrangler, and the flies were even put in the refrigerator in order to try to slow them down. But once they began to thaw out, they got faster, so that didn't work. So then they put uh, dead flies on a string and tried to use that, and that didn't work. So eventually, uh, one of the production people... Uh, was wearing a fuzzy black sweater, and a guy grabbed the fuzz from the sweater, put it on the end of a string, and used, uh, end of a thread, and dangled it from a pole. So that's what actually they were trying to catch was that. So, which did you well, ever? That makes more, much more sense. I, I tried to <laughs> stand a fly. I was going to say the person who ever saw that movie. Yeah, no. I think uh, I think I think every kid with two pencils at school tried to use it as chopsticks uh, to catch a fly. So. My name is Laramie Wells, and I host a podcast called Moving Panels. On Moving Panels, we discuss movies and television shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and a wide range of guest hosts as we discuss the hits like Logan and The Dark Knight, as well as clear misses like X-Men Origins Wolverine and Green Lantern. New episodes drop every other Friday, and you can find us wherever you download your podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and we'll see you on the other side of the page. Uh, this is very interesting to me. So the studio, according to Ralph Macchio, the studio actually spent money creating a thing called Mr. Hashimoto. It was supposed to be a training dummy that Mr. Miyagi had made out of a broom. A Ralph was supposed to bow to it and then it would hit him. Mr. Hashimoto would turn and his hands would wiggle around. Inside this was a hydraulic unit that never really worked. Mr. Hashimoto actually made an appearance in Karate Kid Part 3, but it still didn't work as it was intended. It was too slow and it looked as corny as it sounds. So they decided Mr. Hashimoto was repurposed as Mr. Miyagi putting on a catcher's mask and the vest as Daniel practices punching and footwork at sunset. It was a nice moment for their relationship, and I think we can all agree that you can't do that with a dummy with hydraulics. So, Yeah, when he starts doing the Ali, the Ali shuffle, yeah, yeah. and uh, Miyagi takes him to the ground. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we know the infamous crane kick is not a real karate kick. Fight choreographer Patty Johnson revealed that the infamous crane kick uh, isn't a realistic move at all. The director also added that he had to made it up. He said, it was just something I thought up on the spot. You have no balance. Your hands are, are, are not in a defensive position. It was only done for cinematic reasons. Yeah, and actually, and they, again, they talk about this a little bit at the beginning of 
Cobra Kai one of the seasons yeah. that had you actually done that kick in an actual karate tournament you yeah. would have been disqualified. Uh, disqualified yeah there were two deleted scenes the original Karate Kid script includes two confrontations between Daniel and Johnny that were eventually cut from the film the first takes place in the school cafeteria just after Daniel has bought lunch for Allie seeing them about to take a seat Johnny hurries over just in time to sneak a piece of blueberry pie onto Daniel's chair uh, standing up with his pants covered in blueberries, Daniel is equal parts embarrassed and livid. In a brave act of revenge, Daniel smears what is left of the pie across Johnny's face and shirt. A photo from this scene can be found on the back of the B.B. Hiller novelization of The Karate Kid. The other scene occurs later in the film and also takes place at school. Coming up from a drink at the fountain, Daniel finds himself face-to-face -face with Johnny and stands up for himself once again by questioning the practices of Cobra Kai. So I'm sure those were probably taken out due to pacing and... Uh, yeah, and, and, that, and that scene right there at the waterfront, he asks Johnny why you know, you're questioning to Johnny what it is that he's being taught. Right. Maybe putting a little seed in there Yeah. that that would later come, you know, at the end of the movie, which becomes the beginning of Credit Get 2. Right. Uh, when the, all the students have the falling out with Chris. Yeah, neither one needed to be there. We, we understood pretty well at that point mm -hmm. the, the Johnny and, and Daniel rivalry. Yeah. I agree that that scene of the water fountain would have Made, makes sense because, you know, Mr. Miyagi had already told him, he's like, you know, no such thing as a bad student, only bad teacher. So he was kind of, seemed like he was trying to relay some of that to Johnny. Um, and then I think that goes also to the, um, you know, the big conspiracy theory about, you know, that Johnny is the real karate kid, that he was not the antagonist, you know, he was not the, uh, you know, antagonist, he was more the protagonist. But I think putting those scenes in would show that he was, you know, um, setting setting Daniel up, you know, more so than let, leaving him alone. So, uh, but we won't. I'm not going to jump too much into that controversy today. I'm not well, I'm, even watching the movie though, and I yeah. know what you're talking about again. We're referencing Cobra Kai, but the um, you know Johnny does more in the actual movie to try to get than he kind of remembers yeah. doing. Yeah, in, in his version of events that we, <laughs> that we get in Cobra Kai, so. Uh, he definitely still was the was the antagonist. Uh, I think not that not that Daniel was, was innocent. No, I mean uh, Daniel was was quit. I mean once again, knowing that the screenwriter and the director wanted a someone who looks like a wimp but have a chip on his shoulder, so Daniel was never going to just take it. You know what I'm saying? So like he's being right. egged on, but he's only getting in trouble because he's retaliating. You know, just like the scene on the with the soccer scene when they're. They're playing. So he's trying to. I guess he's trying to get on the soccer team, and they uh, kick him and trip him over, and then he jumps him and starts fighting immediately. It's like that wasn't the smartest thing to do, but he's already kind of got a chip on his shoulder. So anybody that tries to, you know, mess with him, he's gonna retaliate. So, but anyway. Yeah, but that's, I mean that's the equivalent. I mean, again, coaching my daughter in soccer for years and years. I mean, your daughter's played some too. Yeah. I mean, you get knocked down sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, fighting is not the initial reaction when that happens. That's like so much fouling you in basketball. You get up and start <laughs> throwing punches. I mean, you yeah. get fouled. Everybody gets fouled. Yeah. And so he was, um, you know, a little bit of a 
hothead. He yeah. also, you know, tended to jump up and fight there when there were adults nearby to uh, uh, break it up. He yeah. To, you know, he, he started throwing punches and stuff. But anyway, probably a separate story. Yeah. We'll cover one little plot hole, which I thought was interesting, that I never, I thought about, but it didn't stick out But until I saw this. So, Daniel and his mother moved to California as a result of her new job with Rocket Computers. Uh, the original script reveals why Freddie said he had never heard of it, and also shed some light on why it seems that Mrs. Larusso might have an employee at the might, might be in an employee at the restaurant across the street from the Cobra Kai dojo. Uh, in the script, she actually says to Daniel, "They went bankrupt." But listen to this: I walk out of Rocket with the beginning of Excedrin headache, one through ten, about to come on. And I'm going back to the car when this woman comes flying out of this restaurant, the Orient Express, and she's screaming, I quit, I quit. Right behind her is this guy, and he's yelling just as loud, you can't quit, you're fired. It's one minute to noon, people are coming in for lunch, I'm the first person, but only, I'm the first but only applicant, so I got the job. When Daniel questions her new position as a waitress, the mother clarifies that she is not a waitress, she is a hostess. So, yeah, I, I did the... going to be trained for management. Yeah, exactly. So, which I, I thought that was interesting when they're having that lunch at the restaurant. I, you know, you have that scene and I always thought it was like, is she setting up for a meeting there? Or like, was that where she worked? Because obviously you weren't moving across the country to work at a restaurant. So, but yeah. Uh, right. She makes the reference. I always, as a child, thought, okay, the computer thing didn't work out. And so now yeah. she's working at a restaurant. Even though they don't really say that, but it's always what I what I thought, but that just adds fuel to the, why can't we just go home? Yeah. I'm only out here to be a waitress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Restaurants in New Jersey. Right. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. They could have, they could have embellished that a little bit more, but once again, the mother becomes such a non character. Once he begins training with Miyagi. I mean, she never comes to see, check on him during the day when he's gone for, you know, from 6am to, you know, and then I also was, I was trying to figure out when, what time of year was this that he was training? Because for four days straight, he was there at 6 a.m. So was that during like, you know, because you go from Halloween when he gets beat up and then, you know, it's like, it was that the summer? Was it spring break? I mean, we really don't, we really never know. So anyway, I'm nitpicking. <laughs> a little bit. Maybe the, that, you know, came around to the spring and it's the, it was a spring break there and he was, uh, he had spring break off and then the All Valley Tournament was maybe in April or, or May or something. But yeah. Um, yeah, they play a little, little fast and loose with the, uh, with the, the timeline with the rules and with, with the timeline. Yeah. yeah, but I just made me think about one scene that I thought was interesting when they go to the the dojo to to uh, confront Crease and before he you know says he's going to be part of the tournament. I loved how when the meeting is over and Miyagi and Daniel are walking out, they don't turn their back. Like Miyagi keeps his face towards him. And I was like, that's very protective because he doesn't, you know, he sees Crease as a threat. And so he's, you know, he's like, I'm not going to turn my back on you. So I'm walking out, keeping you in front of me, which I thought was a really cool moment in that scene. So that I didn't pick up on before. So, well, and he would tell Daniel later, always look high. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so he, 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 he practiced what he preached before he preached it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right there about uh, maintaining that eye contact and backing out. Yeah. Did you ever have a car that you had to uh, push and uh, pop it to get get it to start? Uh, not a car that I had. I think I had a friend in high school. We had to do it like one time, but it wasn't something we did like on the regular. So, but yeah, I've had to do that one time where you push it until you can pop the clutch, 
and then like you, you can't you got to get it out of I think you got to get it out of first into second I think or something like that. It's been so long I don't remember. So what about you? My dad, I mean, I didn't own one. My dad had an old pickup truck that on a fairly regular basis we would have to uh, <laughs> uh, do that to get it to get it going. Yeah, he had a Datsun. Oh yeah, Nissan. Yeah, my dad had a my dad had a Datsun uh, truck for a long time too. So, all right, let's talk about box office and critical reception. The Karate Kid was theatrically released in the United States on June twenty second, nineteen eighty four. The film received universal acclaim from critics, many of whom praised the action sequences, writing, storyline, acting performances, and the music. The film was also a commercial success, grossing $100 million in the United States and Canada, making it one of the highest-grossing films of 1984 and Hollywood's biggest sleeper hit of the year. Um, so on Rotten Tomatoes, it currently sits at 89% on the tomato meter with an 82% audience score. On IMDb, it's got 7.3 out of 10 with a 60 on Metacritic. I think the 60 is too low. It's Somewhere way too low. Yeah. It's the right, yeah. the right, uh, right category there for, for Karate Kid. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, it's not a perfect movie. I mean, it's not a, it's not an A plus movie. I mean, it's, it's a great movie. I mean, it's, it's inspirational. It's, uh, heartwarming. It's, you know, it's got some funny moments. Uh, but it's, it's definitely not a, a top tier as far as, acting and all that kind of stuff but in story but uh but yeah i would put in the 80s you know high 80s probably for me so elizabeth she won the award for best young supporting actress and emotion uh from the young artist awards okay uh, so zapka was nominated as well for best supporting actor uh zapka was nominated as well but he did not win and then the movie won for best family motion picture yeah yeah i can see that yeah uh, pat marie did not win either of his nominations uh, for best supporting either Golden Globe or Oscar, but all right, Ron, thanks, th- thanks for being a part of this episode. I appreciate you joining me once again. You'll be back for the next one with Karate Kid Part Two. Always a pleasure. We're going to start that in like thirty seconds. We're going to stop and then start again. No, because no. <laughs> <laughs> neither one of us has watched the second one yet again, so we would take some time. So then we will, then we will not yeah. do that. We will, we can make up a lot of stuff if you want to. I haven't done any research on it at all, so that'd be fun. Oh, uh, we can make we can make up some really good stuff. <laughs> we'll do our own Wikipedia Karate Kid page. Like this is all the stuff we think should have happened. So absolutely, the uh, strange uh, love relationship that has formed between Daniel and. And his uh, instructor, as they travel the world together, righting wrongs. And uh, no, no, or maybe not. But I will say, as we lead into that, uh, Elizabeth Shue did not return for the sequel because she went back to Harvard. She had she had suspended her classes at Harvard to make the first Karate Kid, but she did not want to do that for the second one. So that's why she was written out of the, uh, or they had to go in a totally different storyline that way. So. And then she would, she would not too long, too long after that pop up at the beginning of a different sequel. Yeah. Back to the Future 2. Yeah. Where she, where she was not in Back to the Future 1, but she took on the role of Marty's girlfriend. Yeah. At the beginning. I remember looking at it and going, that's not Marty's girlfriend. That's Elizabeth <laughs> yeah. Not, not, in a bad, in a bad wig. Yeah. Not one of her best performances in, in the Back to the Future sequels. So, but anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about Elizabeth Shue, uh, another time. So, uh, but I will say that she was one of my she was one of my crushes as a kid. That was I had I had, I had a lot of love for Elizabeth Shue. So anyway, all right. Until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of the '80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a written review uh, by the end of this month and take a screenshot so you can win that twenty five dollar Fandango gift card we're giving away at the end of the month. So until then, we'll see you next time. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message to the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback.